morning. Well, in our time together this morning and this evening, we'll be, in the will of the Lord, looking into Joshua. Joshua. Um, we'll try and go through the whole of Joshua, so obviously we're only going to hit the peaks. But just, if you would, turn, uh, uh, hold your place in Joshua, if you're there already, and uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you would. For just one verse, 1 Corinthians 10, and uh, verse 11. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. They were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And as we look into Joshua, what I'd like to look at is the application of historic events in Joshua to our lives, to the believer's life today. And as we just read that verse in 1 Corinthians, that in fact, those things of the past are there for our learning, for our instruction. Typology is a valid system of study of scripture. The problem is it's fallen out of favor. And the reason for that is that the cults and even Christians that are kind of on the fringe have taken typology and have built doctrine out of typology. Typology is used to illustrate, the history of Israel is used to illustrate biblical truths, doctrines, to reaffirm them rather than to make doctrines out of things that have gone on in the past. And so we're going to look at Joshua and apply the things that are the history of Israel as they enter into the land to our own lives as we now walk as believers. It's really the story for a believer, for believers. Joshua, you know, his parents didn't name him that. His parents named him Joshua, salvation. But I think wisely, Moses, seeing the fickleness of man's heart and realizing that, that, uh, that Joshua would follow him, said, you know what, we're going to change your name a little bit to Joshua. Not salvation or savior, but Jehovah salvation or Jehovah savior. Not pointing to the man, but pointing to the one who is behind the man, Jehovah himself, Joshua. Now the subject of Joshua for us, as it was for the nation Israel, is rest. It's life, but life at a higher plane. The Lord Jesus said, I came that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. And Joshua is about that abundant living. The Jordan River, 
the crossing of the Jordan River speaks about entering into abundant life. The crossing across the Red Sea speaks of entering into life. The nation Israel was brought out of Egypt by blood, the Paschal Lamb, and by power as they were taken through the Red Sea by God. Speaks of salvation, life. I came to give them life. But that's not all that Christ came for. He wants us to have a full, abundant life. A life of rest. And that's the thought here as we Re, as we'll see here uh, in regards to the nation Israel now crossing into the promised land, into the land of Canaan. Abundant life. There's an abundant life for us, but unfortunately, I would say that a good percentage of us believers have life, of course, because we know Christ as our Savior, but are not living the abundant life. Not living the abundant life. We're living in the flesh. We're attempting to do things in the power of the flesh. In chapter 7 of Romans, we find there, for instance, two types of individuals. We have the natural man, and then we have a man that appears to be a natural man when he is really a believer. He is a carnal man. In fact, Paul puts himself in that, in that position he says, I'm carnal. The things that I don't want to do, I do. And the things I want to do, I don't do. I'm a carnal man. Why was he failing? Oftentimes we use that as an excuse for our own inadequacies in our walk. The problem is we're identifying the problem. The problem is that we're carnal believers. And he calls himself a carnal man. We try in the power of the flesh to live for God, and we can't. And in chapter 8, he brings relief. He brings in the spiritual man in, in chapter 8 of, uh, of Romans, doesn't he? And what do you see there? The spirit, the spirit, the spirit, the spirit. Not self, 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 but the Holy Spirit over and over again. Living in the spirit of God. And that's what this... Land of rest is all about. That's the picture of the land of rest. So we're talking about, when we, when we deal with Joshua, we're talking about a people or a story regarding redeemed individuals. Blood-bought individuals. Bought by the precious blood for us, of the Lord Jesus, brought out of the world and the power that it held us in. And now he says, here is the land before you, but you have to cross the river. You have to cross the river. And so the subject, as I said, of Joshua is for a redeemed people, not redemption, but the character of the, uh, the people of God and their calling. And so in the book, we'll find that those historic experiences of the nation Israel 
those historic events have a spiritual value for us. They hold a spiritual value for us. In, in the nation Israel, the sphere of rest was a place, but the sphere of rest for us is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll note that uh, this evening that they enter the land for an inheritance, and for them the land was the inheritance, but for us, Christ is the inheritance. Now, the scope of this book falls into three sections, three segments. And as I said, we'll try and cover, it'll just be the peaks of, of these three segments. From chapter 1 through chapter 5, verse 12, we have the entering into the land. From, chapter, uh, from verse 13 of chapter 5 through the end of chapter 12, We have the conquest in the land. And then from chapter 13 through 24, the end of the book, we have the possession of the inheritance. Spiritual application. The book of Joshua parallel, the Old Testament book of Joshua parallels the New Testament book of Ephesians. Our blessings are not physical, they're not the land, they are in Christ Jesus. Blessings in Christ Jesus, in the heavenlies. The battle is also there, the principalities, the powers, in the heavenlies for us. And so there is a parallel between Joshua and Ephesians. There's also a parallel from a historic standpoint between Joshua and the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we have the progression of the church. In the book of Joshua, we have the progression of Israel, the people of, uh, of Israel. And so, let's take a look. For just uh, this morning, we're going to look at the first section, and that's entrance into the land. Entrance into the land. A central feature of this particular portion Chapter 1 through chapter 5, verse 12, is the River Jordan. And we'll look at it in three sections. Before going through the Jordan, going through the Jordan, and then the establishment of a base camp at Gilgal on the other side. So on the wrong side in the wilderness of the Jordan, through the Jordan, and then on the other side, of Jordan at Gilgal. So let's take a look at that. First, let's go ahead and read a few verses, beginning in verse 1 of uh, chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise Go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses, from the wilderness of this Lebanon 
as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and to the great sea towards the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to the fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my service commanded, uh, servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord our God is with you wherever you go. And the Lord promises us uh, the blessing of the reading of his most precious word. And so here we are on the wrong side, on the wilderness side of uh, the River Jordan. God sets forth some blessings. Speaking to Joshua now, and he sets forth, I think, at least three blessings. The very first one is that the sphere of their life will be in the land. And for us, the sphere of blessing the sphere of our life is what? Not the land, but the person. The person. Paul could say, relating to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that I may know him. Way after he was already saved. Paul don't you know Christ? Well, of course he knew Christ. But he's saying there that he wants to know Christ moment by moment, experientially. And so the sphere of blessing for us, the life of uh, spiritual blessing is the person of Christ as the land was for the, for the, for the Israelite of, all, of old. That promised land, of course, was, was promised to Abraham uh, in Genesis chapter 15. And again, it was reiterated to Moses uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 11. The next element that we find in verse uh, 5 through 6 here, verse 5 and 6, is that he promises victory over all the enemies. And then finally, he says in verse 9, you know, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. Those are the promises. And the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Those are the three base promises. But they're conditional. They're not unconditional. They're conditional. And here are the conditions. The condition opposed upon the people of God. First of all, in verse 8, knowledge. This book of the law 
shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. The book of the law, for us, the word of God, this is the standard for us. Knowledge of the will of God. How do we find the knowledge of the will of God? Except in this book. The knowledge of the will of God that we might meditate upon it. That little word meditate, we derive from its base, we derive the English word envelope. It says take what you're going to place in your mind of this scripture and envelop it with your thoughts. An envelope, what do you do with a letter? You write a letter, of course today, You don't write a letter, do you? See the kids sitting there going. But in the old days, guys, we used to write letters. And we put them in an envelope. And then we lick that yucky glue, right? Fold it over to mail it. What happened to that letter? It got completely enfolded in that envelope. That's what we're to do with this book. See the will of God to take, or how, how is it the, that it's spoken of by the young people this day? To wrap your mind around it, right? Isn't that it, guys? Wrap your mind around it. So here you have the object of your meditation You wrap your mind around it. It's a lost art, you know. To take the time to meditate on the word of God so that we might know his will. And it's utterly important if we're going to have a life, a spiritual life that's of value for God. The knowledge of the word, the knowledge of the will of God Then in that same verse, we have uh, obedience as a factor. Meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. Obedience. How many of us read the scriptures and we find something in the word of God that the Lord calls us to and we do it at our own convenience or we do it partially, God says no. When I reveal my will to you, I want immediate obedience. When our girls were younger, um, one of the things that took a little time for them to understand is that when I called to them, I expected immediate obedience. Why? Well, here they are playing in the road. And I see around the curb, because we lived on a height at the time, and I see a car that's coming around at a fairly good speed. And I yell to them, Millie, come here. I don't want a discussion at that time. Why? Immediate obedience for her safety. 
And God does that for us as well. He expects immediate obedience. There may be a situation of great peril to us, not physically necessarily, but spiritually. And he says obedience. He wants immediate obedience and he wants complete obedience. We tend to think that the will of God is, should be laid out like a, for you old folks, smorgasbord. Uh, what is it called today? A buffet or something, right? Today? Well, it should all be laid out there in these, these tables, and, and you kind of just pick the will of God. You pick what you're going to be obedient to. He says, no. No. Complete obedience. Not a little here and a little there. Complete obedience. Now, you note how this builds. First of all, you have to know the will of God before you can be obedient to it. Some of us walk around as, as spiritual midgets, as Paul says to the Corinthians. Still on the milk of the word rather than on the deeper things. Spiritual midgets because we're not here seeking the will of God. And so you... You need to be in the word to, to get the will of God so that you can act on the will of God in obedience so that you can be strong. That's, what, that's the next element here. Verse 6, verse 7, verse 9, verse 8, all speak of strength and courage. Notice the progression. You say, well, how, what's the progression between obedience? I can see the progression between knowing God's will and so that I can be obedient to it, but what's the progression from being obedient to being strong? Well, when uh, my daughter and Scott lived up in the top of the mountain up there, they had a couple of acres, and, and, and a young fellow by the name of Nicholas would be called by his father to say, okay, well, you go and pick up the, all those, uh, <clears throat> those weeds, pick up the little timber that is here, uh, get rid of this particular pile of, uh, of stuff that's been built up, and so on and so forth. And he was obedient to the task that the father said, that, uh, that Scott set before him, and guess what? After a little while, he kind of comes and says, oh, yeah. Yeah, there they are. Uh, I think they call them guns. <laughs> hey, feel my guns, Papa. Right? You see, how do, we, how do we develop spiritual strength? By obedience. By obedience. And so here, of course, is the whole principle of faith that is presented for us. Let's go on. In chapter 2, he says, here's the preparation for the crossing. Now Joshua, beginning in verse uh, 1 of chapter 2, Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly. Go view the land, and especially Jericho. Now remember, Joshua was one of the twelve that... 
initially went to search out the land 40 years or 38 years, as some would suggest, previously. Ten of those that went with Joshua and uh, Caleb said, oh yes, God is absolutely right. It is the land of milk and honey, but there are giants in the land. This time Joshua knocks those ten folks out and he says, look, I'm just sending two. That's it. I'm just going to send two because I'm going to get the right answer from these two. And he sends these two spies. He says, go view the land. You see, obedience, immediate obedience. If we want victory in our lives, obedience. When God says, go, you go. Why? Well, he's prepared the way. If he says, go, he's already prepared the way. Look with me at... Uh, at um, For the sake of time, verse 8. You remember the story of the, the two spies and they went to Rahab and Rahab put, uh, took them. Um, well, let's go to verse 4. Then the woman, who is Rahab, took the two men and hid them. Um, and she hid them on the roof. Uh, verse 6. But she th had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax which she had laid in in order to uh, on the roof and then verse um, and verse 9 and said to the men I know that the Lord has given you the land that the territory of you uh, the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you for we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the, of the Jordan, uh, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. This is a report of Rahab. The terror of the Lord. The Lord had already prepared the way. And here's the last little statement that these two spies made in verse 24 of chapter 2. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has delivered all the land into our hand, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of you. Yes, saints, sometimes we wonder about the enemy and say, oh my gosh, I don't know how we're able to overcome. We look around us and we view things on the horizontal rather than the vertical. We say, look at the enemies. And God has already prepared the way. He's already prepared the way. Go. And if he sends, he supplies the need. Go. And so we have this Wonderful uh, exhibition of faith. The promise of God, conditional, but fulfill the conditions. And he says, there's the life that I'm leading you into, based on faith. Now let's take very quickly a look at, uh, uh, at the passage through the, um, the Jordan. Chapter 3. 
Go ahead and break into uh, verse 2. So it was, after three days, the officers went through the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. And Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourself, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Then Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and cross over before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Verse 11, Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into Jordan. Verse 15, And as those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan, and the feet of the priests who bore the Ark dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflowed all its banks, during the whole time of harvest, that the waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside uh, Zertan. So the waters that went down into the Sea of the Araba, the, uh, the Salt Sea, failed and were cut off, and the people crossed over opposite Jericho. And so here we have now the crossing. And it starts off, of course, that here two and a half million people or so are going to cross over, and they're going to cross over on dry land. Now the crossing here is a little different. The, the, the separation of the waters here is a little different than it was at the Red Sea. The Red Sea was a body of water, and, and uh, the Lord separated the water so that there was a wall on either side. In this particular case, that wasn't so. He blocked the river at Adam as the foot of the priest touched the water. The water was stopped. It had to be stopped actually sometime before, didn't it? In order for it to be dry because it appears that from the time that their foot touched the top of the water to the time that their foot hit the ground, they're on dry land. Not wet land, dry, dry land. Now, some have said, if you've read some of the historians, well, you know, what happened is that there was a big mudslide up there, and, and that blocked the waters at, at Adam. Well, if that's what the Lord used, great. What does it matter? When they touched the water, the waters ceased in time that when their foot touched the ground, it was on dry ground. And they walked in there with the ark. Now the ark, what does the ark speak of? It speaks of the Lord Jesus, doesn't it? The acacia wood covered with the gold. The rings in the feet. And the priests carrying that so that the people could see it. And it is the Lord Jesus that leads us through the Jordan. The Lord Jesus leads us through the Jordan. And then, very quickly, 
we're already running out of time. The 12 stones. <clears throat> Verse 2 of chapter 4. Take for yourselves 12 men from the people, one man from every tribe, and command them, saying, Take for yourselves 12 stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet stood firm. You shall carry them over with you, and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. Verse 6, that it may be a sign among you when your children ask in times to come, saying, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord when it crosses over the uh, when it crossed over the Jordan and the waters of the Jordan were cut off and these stones shall be for a memorial to the children of Israel. Verse 20, and these, those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. And then just go back again to uh, verse 9. Then Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant stood, and they are there to this day. And so two and a half million people cross as the priests stand in the middle of the Jordan River on dry ground with the Ark of the Covenant upon their shoulders. They are the first into the water with the Ark, and they will be the last coming out of the water. Joshua is commanded to take 12 men, one of each of the tribes, and they pick up a stone in that riverbed, and they carry it across, and a memorial is set up at the base camp at Gilgal of these 12 stones. And then Joshua enters into the, that riverbed, that dry riverbed by the priests, and he sets up a column of 12 stones there that will be covered by the Jordan when, they, when uh, the priests depart out of there. What is that about? Remember that the River Jordan is a river that suggests death. Not de physical death like we often see in hymns and that, that we enter through the physical death, through Jordan, into heaven, which is the land of Canaan. That's not it, is it? It is the river de of death, but it's the river of the death of self, not physical death. It's death to self. That's the idea. That's the thought here. I have been crucified with Christ. By faith, I know that by virtue of the memorial that is in the river of death. I know by those 12 stones that I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Twelve stones at Gilgal, a memorial. The one speaks of the death of Christ and my death with him. That's the the memorial in the river. The memorial at Gilgal speaks of the resurrection, a resurrected life in Christ. Christ liveth in me. 
I have been crucified with Christ. Christ liveth in me. And so we are to note the fact that the old man has been judged, has been crucified, is dead, judicially. He is dead judicially. And practically, we're to reckon him to be dead. And that's the memorial at Gilgal. Reckon him to be dead. The fellow that's uh, been taken into prison at, uh, for murder, the justice system has placed the penalty of death upon him. the justice system, he is, judicial system, he is dead, yet he is alive in prison, but under control, chained, not permitted to act out his own will, directed all the time, under discipline, and that's the way it ought to be with us, judicially we're dead. Positionally, we're dead. Now, practical lives, well, that old man shows himself fairly regularly, doesn't it? And we're to reckon him to be dead so that there, he has no power to act in our lives. Let me uh, go right on to um, chapter 5. We have two points that are here for us. Now on the other side of, of the Jordan, <clears throat> Joshua sets up a base camp at Gilgal from which he's going to take on the conquest of the, of the nation. We'll look at that this evening. But he sets up this base camp and he's set to do two things. Gilgal has the... the the meaning of Gilgal is the rolling away of reproach. And one of the requirements set forth uh, in, at Gilgal is the circumcision of all of the men. Remember, the, they were circumcised previously, but they were never circumcised in the wilderness. And so you have this new group. All of the old uh, folks have died off. And now this new group comes in. And the very first thing on the other side of the Jordan is the act of purification, the circumcision. Let's read about it. Verse 2 of chapter 5. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives for yourself and circumcise the sons of Israel again, again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskin. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised, uh, circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. Circumcision. We go into the New Testament, of course, the act of circumcision is no physical circumcision is no longer held for us. But man or woman, we're circumcised and to be circumcised in the heart. 
circumcised in the heart. It is a picture of self-judgment. Self-judgment. And so Paul gives us a clear picture of that. Put to death or deprive of power the members which are on the earth, our members which are on the earth. Purification, self-judgment is the idea here. There's a great deal more here, but we just don't have the time. Let's go on now to verse 11 and 12 of chapter 5, our last little portion here. As they've crossed now, (coughs) crossed the Jordan and they're in the land, the very first thing is circumcision, the purification, self-judgment. And the next thing we find is in verse... uh, Starting at verse 10. Now the children of Israel, verse 10 of chapter 5. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land. And the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. They had the Passover, remembrance of their salvation in, the, in, in uh, Egypt. They had the manna through those 40 years or so that they were in the wilderness, the manna from heaven. And now they feasted on the parched corn, corn that's grown. Look at the picture here. Look at the picture. What do we have? Well, the manna that came from heaven day by day, a provision of God for their well-being for all those years. Does it not suggest the incarnation of the Lord Jesus in all his perfection? The manna speaks of that perfection of the Lord Jesus. The one who came from heaven. His incarnation. The Passover uh, speaks of what? His death. God's provision for us in Christ Jesus. There the, the Paschal lamb was slain. The blood is, was a, uh, applied to the lintel and the, and the doorposts, and they feasted under the blood. They feasted on that lamb, which speaks of Christ. And then finally, they enter into the land, and they eat of the corn that comes from the land. Does that not speak of resurrection? It does. If we, we had more time, we could look at it in a little deeper. But here you have the three pictures The incarnation of the Lord Jesus, that one that came from heaven, the death of the Lord Jesus, the Paschal lamb slain and the eating of that, and of course the parched corn. God's provision for his people in the way. In chapter 6 of John, we're given uh, even a broader illustration, perhaps a more pointed illustration, He's presented, the Lord Jesus is presented as the bread that comes from heaven. That's his origin. 
He is presented as the bread of God. Have you thought of that? For our satisfaction. He is the bread of life for a sustenance to sustain us, and he's the living bread that imparts life. Never heard of bread that imparts life, but here the Lord Jesus is presented as the bread that imparts life. His incarnation for the purpose of giving life, imparting life, the bread of life that sustains us, and as the bread of God, he satisfies us. I'm going to take a few more minutes here of your time because I, I think this is an important picture. In the Old Testament, remember the Old Testament offerings? Be they the sweet-smelling offerings or the sin and the trespass offerings that were burned outside the camp, there was a portion that was considered to be the bread of God. And that was the suet, the inner fat, particularly around the kidneys, and the blood. This is my bread. In 44th chapter of Ezekiel, we have a clear picture of it. The, the fat and the blood belongs completely to God. No one could partake of it in Israel. They had to burn that as a sweet-smelling savor on the altar of burnt offerings. Even though the sin and the trespass offering, the expiatory offerings were burnt outside the camp, the fat and the blood were God's portion, and the fat was to be burned on the altar of burnt offering. Why? because it was for his satisfaction. He found in all of the facets of the person of Christ and his work, satisfaction in Christ and his work. Here in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus, the bread of heaven comes down as a gift from the Father the gift from God, the bread of God now is not off limits. He gives it to us for our satisfaction. And as the sons of Zadok in, 40, in the 44th chapter of Ezekiel, we have the great privilege of partaking of that, but also to present that bread of God back to God saying two things, we are absolutely satisfied with your son as you are satisfied with him. Do we live on that level? Oh, dear saints, this morning, the breaking of bread, that's when that action in the corporate sense takes place, where we present back to the Father. The sons of Zadok ministered the bread, uh, the, the bread of God, the blood, and the fat to God. All the other priests couldn't minister that. They ministered to the people, but they couldn't minister to God. Our ministry to God is only in one fashion and one way. His beloved son. 
dear saints. May that be our portion. And so here we have it. The preparation. There is a preparation for entering into this life where the old man is dead. There's an entering into that. Christ leads the way. And we follow. Christ makes sure that we get all the way through because he is also behind us, encouraging us. And here, finally, we turn to a self. Purification. Self-judgment. Looking at self. And judging self. And then feeding on Christ. That's it. Feeding on Christ. This life that is dead in Christ feeds on Christ for its nurture. May that be our portion, dear saints. May we realize the depth of the privilege of an abundant life in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Our Father and beloved God, we do indeed bow before thee. Oh, gracious God, we see the great compliment of your abiding love towards us. And that in Christ Jesus thou hast given us life, life eternal. Thou hast also for this practical way called us to an abundant life in Christ Jesus. We pray, O oh blessed Father, that we might indeed draw upon all that thou hast as far as blessings in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus for us. That we might deem him as preeminent in our lives. Not simply present. We pray this, O oh gracious Father, for our own blessing and above all for thy glory. In the precious name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.